Welcome to the Peds NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Becky Carson, pronouns she, her. I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner and assistant professor at the Catholic University of America. And welcome to our sixth episode in a series on health equity in pediatrics, funded by the Dr. Rashida Monroe Health Equity Grant, sponsored by the North Carolina chapter of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. The purpose of this series is to equip the majority of pediatric healthcare providers who, like me, are white cisgender females with the best practices that will help them serve as allies and partners in healthcare to the diverse children we serve. Let's do a quick recap of our first five episodes. Episode one explored definitions and circumstances around health equity and taught us to use a lens of health equity for every patient so that we can partner with children and their caregivers to create an equitable care plan. Episode two taught us about identifying our own internal biases, even though we may not know they exist. Episode three helped us to recognize microaggressions and begin to intervene when they sneak into encounters or the professional setting. Episode four reinforced the importance of names in our identities, which is also important in our discussion today. And episode five took a practical, evidence-based, person-first approach to implementing the AAP's guidelines on the evaluation and treatment of children and adolescents with obesity so that you can avoid the sequelae of insensitivity. Today's episode is going to focus on LGBTQ youth and their families in short case vignettes that bring up key issues in affirming care. As we explore issues related to vulnerable populations in pediatrics, each episode offers the simple best practices that pediatric providers can implement right now to make your care more equitable. Without waiting for this big public health crisis to be solved by policymakers, nonprofits, and businesses, you can be the change your patients need to see in the world. I also need your help to know whether what we're doing is actually working. So I'm asking listeners to complete a quick one-minute survey for every episode they listen to in order to better understand the impact of a short podcast on health equity. The link is in the show notes or at thepeasnp.com. I'll remind you again and give details about how you can win a gift card at the end of the podcast. Now let's talk about LGBTQ patients and their caregivers. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer youth have a variety of health needs, risks, and disparities that threaten their potential to grow up happy, healthy, and free from any physical or mental harm. It's not only our job to be their ally, but to help them safely navigate their journey that is so frequently laden with discrimination, social prejudice, and physical or mental abuse. LGBTQ youth are more likely than their heterosexual, cisgender, gender-conforming peers to experience bullying, depression, anxiety, attempt or commit suicide, use and abuse drugs, and experience physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. So what is the best practice for managing healthcare in LGBTQ youth? It's simple, and it's a great practice for all of your health encounters. Best practice number seven is don't assume. Let's apply this to some cases of adolescents in the healthcare setting. Imagine you're the emergency room pediatric nurse practitioner seeing a 17-year-old female with dizziness and vomiting. She's well put together, friendly, and looks overall well despite her chief complaint. 
you ask some questions and find out that it's been going on for about three to four days. There's no diarrhea, no fever, no recent travel or sick contacts. She admits to some abdominal discomfort, and when you ask about sex, she reveals that she's in a relationship with a woman. You omit any other questions about her last menstrual period, sex, contraception, and sexually transmitted infections. Instead, choosing to do some quick oral rehydration, diagnose gastroenteritis, and discharge home. She comes back a few days later after having fainted at school. Turns out she's pregnant. Because her girlfriend is actually a trans woman with whom she engages in condomless penile vaginal intercourse. Lesbian and bisexual youth are at least twice as likely as heterosexual youth to have unplanned pregnancies. Don't assume the details of the relationship when she tells you she has a girlfriend. Don't assume that this youth is in a monogamous relationship with their stated partner. Don't assume that their definition of sex meets yours, or that they even know what your definition of some sexual terms even mean. Don't assume that they're using contraception and condoms. Don't assume that they're safe and happy in that relationship. Go down the rabbit hole and ask more open-ended questions, in as vague of terms as you can, while waiting patiently sometimes in an uncomfortable silence, for their narrative response. What body parts of yours are doing what with which body parts of another person? How many partners are you intimate with? Do you use or share sex toys or objects? And where do they go? How do you prevent pregnancy? How do you protect against STIs? What tells you you're in a safe relationship? Who can you talk to if you don't feel safe? They won't volunteer most of this information unless you ask. Our next vignette is inspired by Coulter Thompson et al.'s 2023 article in the Journal of Pediatric Healthcare and takes place in a developmental pediatrics clinic. You're seeing a three-year-old male with autism who's having difficulty with selective eating. When speaking to the father, you give some recommendations about how he and his wife can introduce new foods and provide some stability at mealtimes. Make sure mom puts a lot of familiar foods on the plate next to just one new food. Then you get interrupted because the father needs to correct you. He's gay, and his partner at home is dad, while he's known as papa. The article has a narrative from a father in that exact situation. He says, The provider just turned red. You could see the discomfort. I don't have time to deal with your stuff. At the same time, I have feelings about what just occurred. I need to focus and be present for my child. We saw him two more times after that. He never did say, oh my goodness, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have made that assumption. Don't assume that the caregiver who's present is straight, cisgendered, and or gender conforming. Don't assume that the makeup of the family is a nuclear heterosexual couple with only parents at home. Don't assume that non-gestational caregivers aren't real parents. There are billions of ways to have a modern, diverse family at home that include blended, adoptive, chosen, and multi-generational families whose members' gender identity may not match their outward appearance or the sex assigned to them at birth. And offer a simple, prompt apology if you misstep. Parents in this qualitative study reported that conversations were stressful and awkward when disclosure took place, and that it not only disrupted care, 
but harmed the therapeutic relationship between the child and the provider. Another parent in a same-sex couple described how her school-aged child intuitively sensed the emotional stress that she was experiencing after the child witnessed the conversation surrounding who the real parents were. After sensing that his moms were upset, the child refused to work with the therapist again, which was problematic for a child who needs therapy to make developmental progress. One of the moms was quoted as saying, It's not just the harm they're doing to my relationship with them as providers. It's also the harm that they're doing to their own therapeutic relationship with my kid. And I don't think they get that at all. Coulter Thompson advises having intake forms that honor diversity in relationships, gender, and family structure. Use open-ended questions to ask a family to describe themselves. Who is at home? What are their sexual orientations and gender identities? How do children refer to their caregivers, and how should you refer to them? Make space for foster care or adoption history, or even fertility and egg or sperm donor history for conception, when applicable to things like family history. Other recommendations surrounded supporting LGBTQ families and the need to increase anti-bias training and education for healthcare providers. Now that you're a better skeptic, you don't assume anything. Let's try another case. A 16-year-old male comes in with his parents for his annual well visit and sports physical. The vitals look good, his growth spurt peaked, and his ears are clean as a whistle. Now it's time for his parents to leave the room so that you can have a private conversation with the adolescent. The two of you have had a good rapport since childhood because you always put out the inclusive vibe, an atmosphere of acceptance, comfort, and respect for privacy. The mother happily obliges because you're a trusted member of the healthcare team. You find out your patient has a girlfriend. You ask about intimacy, sex, and safety. And because you don't assume anything about this relationship, you ask how many sex partners he has. And then you find out it's three. And because you don't assume anything, and using LGBTQ inclusive questions and gender neutral language, you ask about what the sex and gender is of the people he's partnered with. He admits that his girlfriend doesn't know that he's hooking up with two guys on the side. You ask him if he's thought about his sexual orientation before. And after a therapeutic silence, he said he doesn't know. But his parents and girlfriend don't know about the other guys, so please don't tell. You reassure him of your confidentiality and ask about what specific sex practices he engages in. He gives you the details, which helps inform your concern for STIs, so you order all of the tests recommended by the CDC's STI guidelines for men who have sex with men. This is a difficult day and age to be a kid, and it's getting harder to be their providers too. So it's necessary to heed the recommendations from NAPNAP's guidelines on the health risks and needs of LGBTQ youth. They tell us to assure and maintain confidentiality regarding sexual orientation and gender identity in accordance with state and federal regulations pertaining to minors. Given the potential risk for both physical and or emotional negative consequences for LGBTQ youth from premature disclosure of information, providers should also explore their professional and legal standards regarding confidentiality when safety of the youth is at risk. Depending on the state, minors can consent to STI testing and treatment, prenatal care and abortion services, 
emergency contraception, and mental health. But it's important to know what the laws are in your state and what the policies are of your institution. In my experience, it's also important to know how your institution or clinic manages the health record and whether parents will have access to discharge paperwork, test results, or billing statements from insurance, as these could potentially out the adolescent's otherwise private encounter. Don't assume this teen is safe at home. Common concerns of LGBTQ youth surround conflict at home, family rejection, or being kicked out. And don't assume he has it all figured out. Ask if he'd like help telling his parents now or later. Coming out can be a scary time. It's important for youth to pick their own timeline, but knowing you're an ally can take off some tension and encourage open conversations in safe spaces. Or maybe he needs a referral to a pediatric mental health specialist who can help him navigate his feelings. Don't assume he understands the health risks he's taking. Encourage health promotion and disease prevention. Discuss the risk of STI infection and the greater rates that are associated with this in the men who have sex with men community. Encourage condom use with any genital interaction or low-risk behaviors like massage. Encourage frequent testing with new partners and pre-exposure HIV prophylaxis. Make a plan to talk with him privately once his test results come back and check in to see how the conversations are going at home. Now that you're a pro at never assuming anything, let's try our last vignette. It takes place at a sick visit with the chief complaint, won't get dressed. Now any parent of a toddler knows that the struggle is real, but it's curious when you notice that the patient is a 10-year-old girl who you know well, Alexis. Hmm, it seems a bit old for that kind of a power struggle. Then you find out the mother is concerned about the patient dressing in boys' clothes and wanting to go by a different name, Alex. Your whole approach to the visit changes because you know that early identification of potential distress or gender dysphoria, supported exploration of identity, and affirmation of gender identity foster healthy growth and development in transgender and gender diverse youth. The mother complains that Alex dresses like a boy plays with boy toys, and has a close-knit group of friends who are all boys. It's one thing to be a tomboy, she says, but now that she's starting to show signs of puberty like breast buds and body odor, she just doesn't want her to be picked on. You thank the mom for her concern because it's clear she loves Alex very much and wants her to be well taken care of. Supportive families have a protective effect on LGBTQ youth, and good friends are the number one predictive factor of good emotional outcomes. And now you have some questions for Alex. You find that Alex knows she's a girl. That's the gender assigned at birth. But she doesn't quite identify as a girl. Or a boy for that matter. She's not cisgender and not transgender. She feels somewhere in between our definitions of non-binary and gender diverse. So you follow the NAPNAP guidelines on LGBTQ youth and find that Alex uses the pronouns they, them. Perfect, you say. I prefer she, her. I'll do my best to use them correctly, but if I mess up, please stop me and remind me. You ask how Alex feels about the changes that are happening to their body and what they know about puberty. 
Luckily, Alex has fabulous self-esteem and is excited about the idea of breasts, but she still has some questions about periods. Alex has strong opinions about what they wear as a part of their gender expression, but is otherwise a pretty easygoing kid with no red flags on your head screening questions, which is great because mental health problems are the main comorbidity of transgender and gender diverse youth. Compared with their cisgender peers, Transgender and gender-diverse youth are more likely to experience anxiety, depression, self-harm, substance use, suicidality, eating disorders, victimization, homelessness, and incarceration. With Mom Still in the Room by Alex's request, you ask about who they're interested in being with for a special event, like a dance or going to the movies. Alex hasn't thought about yet and doesn't really know. As you wrap up the visit, there are a lot of non-assumptions that you had to make. Don't assume that this is the last conversation that will be had about Alex's gender identity, expression, sexual orientation, or mental health. Encourage mom and the family to be supportive of Alex's journey in a gender-affirming way that promotes communication, empathy, and resiliency. And that means supporting the name change, hairstyles, clothing, pronouns, and restrooms all of which are completely reversible if Alex ever changes their mind. But they are also really obvious social ways of gender expression that the family can implement to show support and love for Alex. More permanent options of gender expression include legal affirmation on ID cards and other legal forms, puberty-blocking therapy, medical affirmation hormones, and surgical affirmation should Alex's gender identity and expression become more incongruent with their biological sex. And after talking with Alex and their mom about their hopes for their strong relationship, you also put in a referral to a family counselor in your area who specializes in LGBTQ pediatric patients to help the family gain communication skills that will help them navigate the coming years. Knowing that your relationship with Alex is one of the most important for them to have good health outcomes, you make a plan to see them again at their 11-year-old checkup in three months and offer an elbow bump on the way out the door. The mom stops you on the way out and gives you a happy, teary-eyed, thank you. Now let's talk about that post-survey. Simply go to thepedsnp.com, the link is in the show notes, and click the button that says, take the health equity survey on the homepage. The link will take you to a one minute survey about the episode you just listened to. Once you submit the anonymous voluntary survey, you'll get a link to the page where you can enter your email to win a $15 Amazon gift card. I won't share your email and it's not for marketing purposes. It's just to pick a winner for the raffle. Whether you enter the raffle or not, thank you for completing the survey and sharing your feedback. Your participation is very important, so please take a moment to complete the survey, then share with a friend, your colleagues, and your classmates. I'd like to thank the diversity, equity, and inclusion experts who generously volunteered their time to serve as consultants and editors for the content in this episode, which was generously supported with funding from North Carolina NapNap's Rashida Monroe Health Equity Grant. Follow me on Instagram at the PZNP Podcast email me at thepedsnp at gmail.com. You can complete the survey, see show notes and references at thepedsnp.com. And remember that this isn't just a podcast. 
You're an ally when you don't assume. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.